This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Mark Cullen, Trees for Life, honoring COVID heroes, the ethics of this pandemic, and another shot in the arm. Flu season is just around the corner. But first, Jim Lang is election ready. Well, it's almost here. The 44th general election in this great country taking place Monday, September 20th. There's lots for us to know in the region, in this country, about Election Day. Thrilled to be speaking to Natalie de Montagnier from Elections Canada. Everything you need to know for the election. Natalie, how are you? I'm good, and you? Good. Uh, let's Before we get into the, the minutia, tell us about the work of Elections Canada and how they put pull this off with the logistics of an election with such a big country in so many different regions. That's a great challenge, eh? Because you have 36 days for returning officers to find their office, then find polling locations, then send the voter information card to all electors, and then hire uh, 215,000 elect- uh, not electors, but elections voters for the day of the election. Well, I, my wife and I both did the mail-in ballot. We had a lot going on. We're like, we don't know if we're going to make it to the polling station. So we tried it. And I have to say, Natalie, you and your staff should be impressed because we found it dead simple to figure it out the ABC envelope and then fill it out and then mail it back. Well, I'm glad you did then because it's, yeah, it is easy. You just have to follow the instruction. But at the end of it, you know, like once you do it once, then you can do it, you know, many more times if you need to. Now, uh, I know some people at work, and my wife and I have some friends that went to the advanced polls, and there were some pretty big lineups. From what you know from Elections Canada, have you got any advance of how many people turned out to the advanced polls in the country? So we don't have the final numbers at this point, but what I can tell you is that there seems to be a trend, again, that there's the data that we have for the first day definitely show that there was more people that voted compared to the first day at the last election. Same thing for the second day. So we're waiting today for the um, the, la- the the day, the, um, the number of people that voted at that point, but it seems to be more than in the last election. Well, I'm, I'm sure as someone who works at Elections Canada, you know this, but I feel very strongly that it's, it's really important for people to exercise their democratic right to vote every time we have an election. People coming up on Monday the 20th, what do they need to know when they go to vote? So they need to know that maybe their polling location has changed. Ah. Because, you know, because of COVID, some of the places that, you know, they're used to go vote might not have been accessible or might not have been, you know, uh, offering the physical distancing. So you can check your voter information card. That will tell you where to vote. If you have not received it, you can go to our website at Elections Canada, but it's elections.ca with uh, elections with an S, and you simply input your postal code, and that will tell you where you go and vote, and take your number, uh, the poll number. That will help you, you know, go through the line quicker. So I find out where I'm supposed to vote. I show up. What do I need with me? You need ID to prove who you are and where you live. 
Most people have a driver license. That's all you need. If you don't have that, then you can, you know, you can use a health card and you can use a utility bill, like with, that shows your name and your address. There's plenty of examples on our website if you're not sure. And I know some people feel like, hey, I don't have a voter card. Can I still vote? Do you need the voter card when you go to the polling station to vote? No, you don't. You don't need that. It, it makes things quicker, but you don't. And if you're not registered, don't worry, you can register at the polls. So if you move and you have not updated the address, or for whatever reason, you're a student away from home, whatever the reason, if you have the proper ID and the proof of your address, then you can register at the poll and then you can go and vote. Speaking with Natalie de Martigny from Elections Canada. And Natalie, I know there are some people, uh, COVID is a concern for their family and friends and their health and someone else's health. I mean, will the process of voting at the polling station be a little different now that we're doing it in the middle of a pandemic? Yes. So where you're going to see what you're used to, you'll be required to wear your mask, and an elections worker will be wearing masks. You'll be um, sanitizing um, your ends at the, at the entrance and exit. There'll be physical distancing. One poll worker behind a plexiglass barrier. Um, you will use, you know, it's a single-use pencil, or you can bring your own pen or pencil if you choose. And um, surfaces will be, you know, sanitized um, regularly. So basically, it's almost like going to a store with some of the COVID protocols they have there, but this time with an election, and I know sometimes at the grocery store, they wipe down all the cart handles before you use it. This time, they're just doing single-use pencils. Yes, that's correct. And then um, it's true. We've been used to, by now, when you go to the grocery, it's going to be something similar. We've been working with um, health, uh, public health authorities to ensure that the polling station were going to be safe for the elector, for the election workers, and for any political participant. How many elections have you been part of now, Natalie? I think it's my sixth or seventh election. Oh, so that's, I mean, so you've seen a lot. I mean, how, how has it changed over the course of your time with these different elections? Um, Canada's changed a lot. How has the, the process of the elections changed with your work in Elections Canada? Well, from a media relation perspective, I think that the main change is um, the use of social media now. Mm. And um, so that changed quite a bit because, you know, people are getting their information differently. So are the journalists, and it's quicker. So when we get phone calls, or well, phone calls or email, I should say, <laughs> or direct message, it's uh, from journalists. Um, they need the information a little bit faster. So that's you know, I, I'm sure everybody can relate to that. But that's part of a uh, one of the main change. And I have to say, Natalie, you and your staff have done a very, very good job on social media, whether it's my Facebook feed or Twitter feed, and the post, and it's like very simple, easy, and uh, accessible information in both official languages and what to do coming up for Election Day. Thank you very much. I'll pass along your comments to uh, our team who's on charge of social media. I'm sure they'll be happy. That was the point. That's how you reach like a lot of people, especially young voters. So that, that was, um, there was a lot of uh, energy put into social media this time around. So it's a simple checklist. When in doubt, go to the Elections Canada website, find out where your user postal code, find out your polling station. Uh, if you don't have your voter card, don't worry. Bring photo ID or utility bill to prove who you are and they have single-use pencils if you're not comfortable bring your own writing instrument and you can vote 
Yes, you said photo ID, but it's, you don't need a picture ah. all the time. If you have your health card and you have like a utility bill, or you know, you don't need a picture. Ah. So you just um, just check our website; it'll be um, very uh, comprehensive. Perfect. Natalie, thank you so much. A thumbs up and fingers crossed a smooth election for you and your staff. And uh, hopefully you get a bit of a break after this. You've, you've earned it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Tina Cortez. One of the key issues in this election campaign is health care. To break down a new survey from the Canadian Medical Association is their president, Dr. Catherine Smart. Dr. Smart, welcome to the feed. Thanks for having me. So you're quoted as saying that Canadians expect a federal commitment to fix the health care system. Have you heard that commitment from the leaders on the campaign trail? I don't think we've totally heard that level of commitment yet. We've certainly heard the leaders of different parties uh, taking different approaches to how they would address health care. I think it's certainly encouraging to hear more conversations about health care because often during elections it's not a priority and certainly this year all the platforms have suggestions around what to do. Um, but we'd certainly like to see more directed conversations about health, more detail um, and a real actual commitment to taking action. Before we get into the findings of this survey, what specifically needs to be quote unquote fixed in healthcare? Well, I think there's many issues for sure in the system that we need to address. You know, it's been made even more clear during the pandemic just how we've been living in this environment of austerity in our system for so long. So when you sort of start breaking it down, you know, one of the fundamental problems is a lack of adequate funding. The federal portion of funding to the provinces through the Canada Health Transfer has been less than it was when the system was first designed, and it's starting to decline. Um, and without more investment, the proportion of funding from the federal government over the next few years will be significantly less, and that's really impacting the province's ability to actually deliver care to their citizens. And this is, of course, on the backdrop of an aging demographic and older Canadians that require more health care services. So that's you know a big uh, concern that we have. The other issue that really needs to be addressed is primary care access. We have a system that's founded on the idea of people having a medical home with a primary care provider, yet 5 million Canadians don't have that, which makes it very challenging for them to have any continuity of care or to access other parts of the healthcare system. So we're really looking for a significant investment to create team-based primary care to allow Canadians to access that. So that's another huge area. And then when you start looking at other aspects of health, uh, this is where we also need a lot of things fixed. For example, long-term care. You know, as we saw in the pandemic, we saw very different outcomes for elders living in for-profit versus not-for-profit homes. There's no national standards for long-term care. Uh, and this is an area we're really hearing from older Canadians is is their desire for more options in terms of aging in place. And we'd like to see more integration of home care delivery um, and long-term care options uh, for older Canadians. So those are some of the top priority issues uh, that we're seeing. And then this is, of course, on the backdrop of things like climate change, which pose arguably the biggest risk to human health that needs to be addressed. Um, and, of course, the pandemic that still is ongoing um, and needs, needs to still be addressed as well. Absolutely. Can you break down or detail some of the specific findings of this survey? 
For sure. So what, you know, what we were really wondering is do Canadians feel the same about the healthcare system as we do as Canadians or as Canada's physicians? And, and what we found is they absolutely do. Um, when we looked at what Canadians want to see federal investment in, uh, the number one answer was healthcare. 24% of Canadians felt that was the number one priority. After healthcare came the economy and then affordable housing. Uh, so that, you know, again, confirmed for us that that's a concern for people. Uh, nine out of 10 Canadians saw that as their number one uh, thing that they wanted the federal government to talk about. The other thing we found out was that six out of 10 Canadians felt that their vote would be determined on the party's a platform in terms of what they were going to do about healthcare. So it's a definite priority for people in terms of what they're going to do. The other big area for us that we're concerned about, and, and Canadians seem to be as well, um, is working more with healthcare workers and how to support healthcare workers and how to see more collaboration between provinces and the federal government. And several Canadians, and three out of ten Canadians, also felt that that was a priority that the government needed to address. So overall, I think we were seeing a lot of alignment uh, between our concerns and the concerns of, of citizens. Did you receive any comments or um, feedback regarding prep for the next pandemic? We did. We saw that three out of four Canadians agreed that the federal government needs to be preparing for the next pandemic and needs to make that a priority. Um, and that also linked to the issue that people felt that climate change also needed to be addressed at the same time and leading to better health. And we know that climate change is a risk for future pandemics. Um, so those two things really linked together in Canadians' minds also. Dr. Smart, do you think our healthcare system is still a source of national pride? I think it is, but I think sometimes the pride we take in our system prevents us perhaps from really seeing what's happening with our system and really being willing to have honest conversations about what's working and not working. You know, sometimes it almost becomes like this untouchable Canadian ideal that I think sometimes politicians are, are hesitant to dive into. Um, but I think what, what we know is Canadians value their healthcare system. I think what they take pride in is the concept of universal access and a healthcare system that's there to meet everybody's needs. But I think what we know now as, as we've, you know, moved through time is that we need to modernize our system to really do that in a real way. What we really have is a universal illness system more than a universal health system. And bringing things like mental health, pharmacare, other support into what we describe as universal health, also long-term care, are, are ways that we could really start to create a health care system for all Canadians. Well, I guess we'll wait and see what kind of message voters send to political parties and their candidates on Monday. Dr. Catherine Smart, President of the Canadian Medical Association, thank you for joining us on the feed. After the break, the ethical debate when it comes to COVID-19. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. 
still so many questions surrounding COVID-19, the Delta variant, the arrival in Ontario of a new one called Mu, vaccinations, their efficacy against the mutations of the virus, their longevity, prompting increasing interest in the booster shot, vaccine certificates resulting in rising inoculation rates, but also heated protests by anti-vaxxers. Then there are fluctuating COVID case numbers with almost daily reports that the majority are those who are unvaccinated or partially so. Bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman, U of T, is our guest. Thanks, Carrie, for joining us on the show. Good to have you with us again. Happy to do so. So let's talk about the Delta variant and how pervasive is it here in Ontario? Well, all indications are it's very pervasive. It seems to be the dominant, uh, you know, the dominant variant at this point. And it, it's really pervasive in many places all over the world. But, you know, it seems we're rising to the challenge. How effective are the vaccines, the ones that Canadians have options to have at this point? How effective are they, fully vaccinated, against Delta and even Mu, the new variant that is reaching into our province? Well, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I follow this closely. And so what we do know with Delta is that, you know, a fully vaccinated person, that their chances of serious illness and hospitalization are profoundly diminished. But they're not gone. They're not gone at all. Look, with the new variant, uh, this is much more complex. I'm going to leave that one alone. I'm not sure all of the information is known. It looks like you know, we'll be able to deal with it the way we've dealt with Delta, but I, I think a lot of information is still emerging on that one. What about the booster shot? And from a bioethicist point of view, that would be you. Some see it as a great way to kind of shore up the efficacy of the first two shots. Others see it potentially as a bit of a cash grab on the part of the pharmaceutical companies. Well, I'm very concerned about the booster. Now, look, you know, following the data, there's no doubt that, that, that people that are immunocompromised, you know, what transplant recipients, these could be, you know, potentially cancer patients, and, and maybe some of the frail elderly uh, would benefit from a booster. But the evidence is simply not there yet for the broader population. And, you know, Anne, I would say very strongly, speaking as an ethicist, the greatest threat to us all as Canadians is the global pandemic. And, I, you know, we're doing next to nothing about that. And it's very important that we begin to move our shots out into low-income countries because these variants will keep, you know, it's epidemiological and it's ethical. These variants will keep coming at us if we don't deal with it. So, in other words... Instead of continuing to protect ourselves, we need to have those shots go elsewhere so that others in the world are protected and COVID-19 might, might stop the spread if with any luck. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's not so much that we're not protecting ourselves because, look, the evidence isn't there yet. That could change that, you know, the average person um, is going to need a booster. That could change. And hopefully, if it does and productions are high, we'll deal with that. But at this time, it's so important. We have fallen down so, so badly on our global commitment to this pandemic. And look, you know, these variants will keep coming at us if we don't deal with the big picture. Let's talk about 
kids under the age of 12. Why is it at this point, why aren't they being vaccinated? So my understanding is the data is simply not there yet in terms of the safety uh, of the children themselves. Uh, many would also argue that, the, you know, the risks of illness appear to be, uh, you know, different for children under 12, in which they're, they're much lower, it, it appears. And look, the argument, too, would be that ethically, are we doing it for them or are we doing it for us? Which is an interesting ethical question. When I say doing it for us, it could be that the risks of the, the COVID-19 are so much lower for them that the reason we're vaccinating all the children is to protect everybody else. And that kind of puts a different ethical twist on it. But again, I want to stress we don't have great data on that yet. We will with time. And we are now wrapping up the second week of school, really the first full week for many students, but kids are back in class, all ages, all stages. There are COVID issues in schools, in the GTA, in Ontario. Is that the result, perhaps, of the under-12 not being inoculated? It could be, and I truly don't know, or it could be the, the, you know, the social conditions these children are coming from. Uh, they could be coming from families with low vaccination. There could be socioeconomic considerations. You know, I don't know. But you're right. Uh, there definitely has been. And, you know, if the number's significant, the, the, the schools will be shut down. You know, a whole bunch of vaccination workplace rules started uh, this past week. They have gone into effect this past week with the future guidelines and restrictions to come. What are your thoughts on that, on, on certain workplaces demanding that their employees either be fully vaccinated or are tested several times a week? What's, what's the point of the testing if... If they're not willing to be fully vaccinated, can this testing a couple of times a week, if not more, can that keep the workplace safe? Well, I would assume it can keep it relatively safe. I mean, the challenge with testing is it's cumbersome. Um, and, you know, it's also an ethical question as to who picks up the cost. Does the employee pick up the cost? Does the administration pick up the cost? Those types of things. But look, with <coughs> there's people out there that absolutely do not want to be vaccinated. And, you know, what worries me is, is you know, I, I, I appreciate the importance of, of, of uh, you know, vaccine mandates, but there are definitely people that don't want to be. And, and kind of the ethical principles are going out the window in which and this is not free and informed consent. There's people that are being vaccinated against their will because they need to secure their income because they've got children to raise. So I'm, I'm saying as an ethicist, that, you know, this is a little worrisome how hard we're pushing on the mandatory. And I, I just hope there's still some flex in the system. And some would see the flex as the medical or human rights exceptions and, and exemptions. And so who knows what those are and who knows whether they will be recognized or the person who does not want to be vaccinated, whether they can come forward with this proper uh, exemption and have it uh, understood and accepted. Yeah, and that's exactly it. You know, the lawyers have a broad range of opinions on this. And in fairness to the lawyers, it's because these things haven't been tested yet. So, you know, how much of a human rights challenge will there be? Uh, my understanding, and I've tried to read on this as extensively as I can in relation to religion, 
it's a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of religions and minuscule that, that really stand against vaccinations. So that one may not work, but there are people that are just fundamentally opposed to it. And, and you know, we will see what our courts do with that. But right now, the, the mood of the nation is very intolerant towards anyone that's not vaccinated. There is an independent MPP who uh, just this past week is talking about putting forward legislation that would would forbid and not allow companies to fire employees if they don't have their full inoculation. Mm-hmm. That would not allow that, yeah. You know, there's a lot of differences of opinion. And, you know, with vaccine mandates, it does not surprise me that there's conflict emerging uh, throughout the province and throughout the country. Um, This doesn't surprise me in the least. And we could say these people are crazy all we want, but, you know, they are part of the fabric of Canadian life. And, you know, we've got to figure out a way where we can all live together. What do you think about vaccine certificates? Well, so we're talking about within the country, right, Anne? Yes. Not, not internationally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm hoping they're a tool. I do not believe that they will change everything. And I think it's very important that, that, you know, people realize that if you go to a restaurant and you've got a vaccine certificate and you're inside that restaurant, you know, and everyone has been trained, that's not a guaranteed firewall that there's absolutely no risk of infection in the environment that you're in. Um, it, it's a tool, but it's not a firewall. There are exceptions to that. And I think we have to be very, very clear that risks do not go to zero, even though we have, you know, we may enforce aggressively vaccine certificates. So as a layperson, that would be me. I'm asking you this, the bioethicist. There are organizations that require proof of vaccination in order to enter them. Some restaurants, this will be in the future and and very shortly, gyms, the cinemas, that sort of thing. But not necessarily do the employees have to be double vaccinated. I don't understand that. No, and that's not an ethical position. That's a legal position from my understanding. In terms of employment law, it's very hard to insist that they're vaccinated, is my assumption. But look, this shows that this is a very strong, you know, this confuses you. I don't blame you at all. This doesn't make sense. And, and you know, it, this is not lost on the public. So you're going into that gym. You're going into that restaurant. Everyone's been screened. And, and the person working in that gym could potentially not be vaccinated at all, you know. So, so this, these are some of the ins and outs of the problems of vaccine certificates is the lack of consistency in many, many areas. And, you know, I also worry with vaccine certificates, not just the people that are willing to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada, but, you know, I, I, you know in, in the past I've worked a great deal with people with developmental delays, and I, I think of people with challenges physical and cognitive what kind of burden it's going to put on people is really really going to be quite onerous and again i go back to a point i hope there will be some flex within the system so as we move forward into official fall which is just around the corner what are your thoughts in terms of protection against covid-19 and protection of our rights i mean where do we find a balance 
Well, look, they, you know, we're, our society is in massive transition. We, we haven't had a crisis this prolonged and this deep, you know, really since World War II. Uh, so we're finding our way with this. But one of the things that worries me about this is that autonomy, you know, the, the free and informed consent is losing ground very quickly. Um, and we're going much more towards what is best for the largest number of people, even though we don't all agree on that. So that's one of the problems. But I do think vaccine mandates are here. And um, I just hope we, if we're going to do it, let's do it well and let's do it fairly. So, Carrie, the election is on Monday. What would you say to our next leader in terms of dealing with COVID-19 on a forward-going basis? What I would say to our next leader is we have a scientific and ethical obligation to deal with the global pandemic. It's the greatest threat to Canadians. Um, We have got to reach out to low-income countries and be as helpful as we possibly can can. It's the right thing to do ethically, and it's the greatest threat to all of us. And and look, and I, I would also say, you know, as the election has gone along, I think it's horrible that they have used vaccinations as a wedge issue. I really think it has elevated tension within our country, and it didn't have to happen. Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist, University of Toronto, really appreciate your opinions, your thoughts, and thanks for joining us on the feed. Very happy to do so. Some pharmacists are predicting a tough flu season this year. Jim Lang rolls up his sleeve. Yes, COVID is a big part of our reality now, but I think a lot of people, including myself, have forgot that the flu is also a big part of our reality. And we better get ready for flu season because it's almost upon it to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by Jaspreet Chagger. Jaspreet, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, thank you. I mean, your position, Senior Manager, Pharmacy Innovation at PharmaSafe East, uh, you were well-equipped and well-educated and, you know, everything that goes with it to talk about this. We have sort of, I feel, my family, we just forgot about the flu. Are you finding that in your research that people sort of forgot about it and all the COVID mania? Well, I think some people may have the misconception that we might be safe from the flu just because we haven't seen too many cases, and that's made why it's We had uh, a quiet season last year. We didn't have too many cases, although we did have record number of vaccines, which was fantastic, especially in pharmacy. But just given the, the low numbers, I think people are anticipating that they don't really need to worry about it, which is absolutely not the case. Well, Jasmine, I mean, even I didn't realize in a typical year, over 3,500 people die every year from the flu. Yeah, it, it is It is quite severe, um, especially for the high-risk groups, you know. So your seniors, your children, pregnant women, um, and there's certain conditions out there. But definitely, it means 3,500 deaths, like you mentioned nationally, over 1,200, uh, 12,000 hospitalizations. So you can imagine if we were dealing with both COVID and influenza at the same time, that would definitely overwhelm our healthcare system. Now, you can get more details. Go to the website, pharmasave.com slash flu. And for people wondering, it is a quite a wide variety. I mean, you can start getting the flu shot. Am I correct? At a very young age? 
Yeah, so we recommend the flu shot for anybody over six months. Um, we can provide flu shots in pharmacy to anyone over two years in Ontario. Um, everyone else, I mean, if children younger than that can obviously go to their physicians, their pediatricians to get the doses. But yeah, everyone over six months is our recommendation. Now, I, I mean, I, I know you probably deal with a lot of this misinformation all the time, Jess Breed, but there's lots of stuff on Facebook. Well, I got the COVID shot. I don't need the flu shot. But that's not true, is it? No, absolutely not. Um, so you would definitely need the influenza vaccine to protect you against uh, influenza itself, just like you need the COVID vaccine to protect you against COVID. So one will not necessarily provide optimal defense against the other conditions. So both vaccinations would be necessary. Speaking with Jasbri Chagger, the Senior Manager of Pharmacy Innovation for PharmaSafe East, and I always think about um, the new normal. That's the term we hear about all the time. We as Canadians going forward, will we, are we going to be, I guess, more diligent about washing hands, wearing masks, and, and preventing germs in the flu? Are you expecting numbers to go down because we're, we've been so rattled by the whole COVID pandemic? Uh, and you mean, I would hope. I would certainly hope so. I just dropped off my two kids at school, so I hope <laughs> that that's the case, that we all follow public health guidance. The reality is, though, last year we had a lot more stricter measures in place where a lot of people were working from home. Kids weren't really in school. This year, however, uh, we can anticipate an uptick in cases just of both COVID and influenza, just because children are back in school, a large proportion are back in school, people are heading back to the office. So transmission of disease is likely to happen. But if we follow all those public, all that public health guidance that we had in place, we can definitely mitigate the potential impact of, uh, of a twindemic, of having both, you know, influenza and COVID circulating in, in huge numbers. We could try and avoid that at least. And it's, it's very basic stuff to help protect yourself on top of the shot. It's good hygiene, washing your hands, yep. masking when possible. And the, the one that I my wife was on me all the time because, you know, old dog, new tricks, coughing or sneezing into my sleeve instead of uh, like into my hand. Yeah, it's those simple things that they seem like, it seems like almost we don't need to do it. I know there is fatigue, like there's pandemic fatigue and people just don't want to anymore, but it is very important to continue following those practices. It's very simple stuff, just wearing a mask, staying at home if you're sick, keeping your kids home from school if they're sick, uh, washing your hands, like you said, coughing and sneezing into your sleep, all these things we know will definitely prevent the spread, reduce the spread of both. COVID, as well as influenza. I thought I read something somewhere that the optimal time to get the flu shot is sort of after um, Halloween before Remembrance Day in that early November. Is that still the case for pharmacies and doctors in Canada? Yeah, so generally speaking, we get the vaccine in Ontario sometime in October. And we generally say, yeah, the the sooner the better that you get it because it does take 14 days to get, just like the COVID vaccine, for you to develop those antibodies. Um, So to reach proper efficacy levels, you want to have at least two weeks. Um, The reason we say October is so that you have coverage into spring months as well. So usually that flu shot will last you, will provide immunity for about five to six months. So that's why we do in October, uh, second half of October, November beginning, uh, just to protect you uh, for throughout the season. 
Again, the, the website, pharmasave.com slash flu. We're speaking to Jasper Chagger, the Senior Manager of Pharmacy Innovation at Pharmasave East. The flu is still a reality in Canada, especially with our climate and everything going on. And as you pointed out, people getting back to normal with school and jobs. Mm-hmm. So as well as we have to be aware of COVID, we have to be aware of the flu. Get that shot and protect others. Jasper, thank you so much for educating us and reminding us that the, and, and reminding me that, oh yeah, the flu, I have to think about that as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for um, allowing me to have this discussion. Take care, all the best, and stay healthy. You too. Okay, keep up. Bye-bye. bye bye. The education journey for parents and students is so unpredictable this year. Tina Cortez with Ways to Cope. The first full week is in the books for most students and parents, but the unpredictability of COVID 19 continues to have an impact. Heather Prime is a professor at York University in the Faculty of Health Department of Psychology. Professor Prime, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the kids are excited about being back in school, but how do parents and in turn their children manage the uncertainty, the stress that goes along with it during these times? It's, you know, I think it's been such a long haul for for all of us and including parents to manage this persistent uncertainty. It's, you know, every new transition feels exactly like that. It's brand new with new concerns. And, um, you know, that sense of normalcy that we long for really just feels far away a lot of the time. So um, I think it is a common experience for parents right now to feel that stress and, and longing for predictability. In terms of managing that, I think there are a few things that families can do. Um, One is to try and really increase some predictability where they can. So really working on family routines and um, making sure everyone's on the same page in terms of knowing what's expected of them in terms of, for example, a morning routine or an after-school routine. Um, And the reason I say that is because the more we can really help kids to feel that there's some predictability in their lives, the easier it will be for them to kind of roll with the punches as they come. Um, so that that grounding at home will help them manage some of the left, you know, some of the feelings of chaos that might happen outside of the home. We hear about raising resilient children, but how do you define resilience and how can families build it? I really like the way you put that because it is something that we want to nurture in our families. People aren't born resilient. It's not something that is inherent to a single person. It's something that we really do uh, nurture in in our lives. So, we, you know, what is it? Resilience is really how we as parents, individuals, children recover or even thrive in the face of stress. So it's, you know, it's through these stressful experiences that we actually build our resilience and, um, you know, work that muscle of resilience. And it really requires help from families, but also social, social networks and community, as well as broader systemic and structural supports, too. And you you mentioned how routines and predictability helped students sort of roll with the punches. 
But how can families manage the fear and anxiety that goes along with just that, you know, that return to school under normal circumstances, not to mention what's happening right now? You know, I think what's important for families to know is that, first, it's normal for kids to have some fear and anxiety. And, of course, not all kids will. You know, there's there's differences between kids, we all know. Um, but to really make space to have conversations about uh, what kids are feeling. And it might not always come out as fear and anxiety. It might be resentment or anger or um, withdrawal or, um, you know, lack of motivation. Whatever it is, is for parents to really make space to talk about that and get the hard feelings out on the table. And the priority is for families to really convey to their kids that whatever they're feeling is okay, that they, their feelings make sense, that this is, this is a challenging time for kids, and it's been a long time that they've had to sacrifice a lot um, and, and tolerate this uncertainty. So really communicate that how they're feeling makes sense. And then once kids feel like their feelings have been acknowledged and accepted, then you can help to problem solve. And so that will mean different things for different kids. It might mean helping them come up with a plan to manage their worries. So maybe they are worried about, um, you know, facing social situations again for the first time in a long time. So you might help them find a friend to walk you know, into school with or to plan to sit with at lunch. Um, or, you know, it, it would be different for different kids. And what's actually interesting is that once kids feel like their uh, feelings have been addressed, they're actually pretty good at problem solving. Uh, so really, I, I encourage parents to first tend to the feeling and then tend to the problem solving. And I'm assuming in line with that, parents and caregivers have to be aware and have to screen for mental health concerns as well, right? Absolutely. I think that's a really important point is that parents know their kids best. They know their kind of baseline. So um, you, you want to trust your instinct about how your, how your child's doing compared to what you would expect for them, and also what you would expect compared to other kids their age. So as I said, all kids are different. They come with different temperaments and personalities and needs. Um, and so we don't want to do too much comparing. But you do know if, if this represents a significant shift. So we think about things like duration, so how long you're seeing changes for. If your child's all of a sudden or not all of a sudden, but has shown a change. Um, is it lasting for a long time? That's one thing we want to look out for. Uh, we also want to look out for the intensity of the change. So if it's if their feelings are big and prolonged, and then related to that, if they're getting in the way. So if your child, the changes in your child's behavior or emotions are getting in the way of them enjoying school, you know, managing school tasks enjoying their friends or if it's getting in the way of family relationships, those are all kind of red flags that maybe um, you might want to get some additional support. That might be online support. There's plenty of online resources for parents to help manage um, children's emotions. And then, of course, potentially reaching out to a family physician for a referral or support for a mental health professional. 
Well, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. What are the roles of communities and policies to support families, especially those who are facing more challenges during this time? You know, our schools are such an important part of helping families find a sense of normalcy. Um, you know, we we know that the return to school means, um, you know, it's not just that schools educate and socialize children, but they're also instrumental in supporting children when families are stressed. And they also um, are a powerful symbol of normal life. It's when, you know, in communities that have acute crises, it's when the schools get back up and running that is that's both a symbol of recovery, but also it helps to facilitate recovery. So safe childcare in schools is a, really should be a priority for kids right now. Relatedly, a lot of kids access their mental health supports through schools. So um, getting kids back into school will then help them get the mental health supports they need. In addition to that, um, we really need to make sure that we have access to timely mental health supports, whether that's through primary care, publicly funded mental health programs, um, and that's for kids, but also their parents. Great advice. So, Professor Prime, one last question. Is there a way to integrate emotional health into our daily routine? Absolutely. You know, the emotional health means uh, allowing emotions to present themselves, you know, accepting them as they arise, talking about them. Uh, The way that we can bring emotional health into our routines is to talk about them, to say, oh, hey, it looks like you're a bit down today. What's going on? Or, oh, sorry, I just snapped at you. I'm feeling a little bit on edge about school starting tomorrow. The more we can model that emotions are normal um, and accepted, the more kids will then learn to uh, pay attention to their own emotions, express them, and that in turn is just critical to being able to manage and control emotions. So, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, our inclination is to shut down emotions, whether it's you know, coming from a good place, of course, saying, oh, you feel sad, let's go get an ice cream, or oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine, you've, done, you've gone to school a million times, like, there's nothing to worry about. It's just our knee-jerk reaction is to reassure, distract, um, or problem-solve. And really, what the, the most important thing parents can do is just let the emotion be and give it some space to talk about. And then, as I said, then you can problem solve. So I'm not saying to do away with the ice cream and the, and the encouragement. It's just that first, you know, emotional health means allowing emotions to be. And then we can, we can go to step two, which is to help kids recover from how they're feeling. All right. Well, here's hoping for a successful, at least first semester of this new school year. Professor Heather Prime, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. When we come back, planting a tree to honor COVID heroes. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to the feed. Since 2015, two million trees have been planted along the 401 Highway of Heroes in Ontario as a way to honour those who serve our country. This project is about to go nationwide and expand beyond but still include war heroes. It will also now recognise and pay tribute to Canadian COVID-19 heroes, people who, through this pandemic, have courageously stepped up and made a difference. Trees for life, literally and figuratively. Mark Cullen, expert gardener, author, broadcast founding chair of the Highway of Heroes tree campaign and Trees for Life, joins us now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's always great to hear from you. And it's always great to hear from you, and thank you. Double-pronged question to begin with. What exactly is Trees for Life, and now what is the COVID connection? Well, Trees for Life is um, a collaborative effort to plant trees in communities across Canada, you could say coast to coast to coast, although I haven't figured out how to plant trees up in the tundra of the Arctic. But we're going to plant a lot of trees, and no offense to the people that grow trees in reforestation areas of northern Quebec and Ontario and elsewhere. Our trees are planted where people live, and we believe that the greatest social benefits are derived where people live with trees. And the environmental benefits are equal, I would assume, um, regardless of where you put them. But the connection to COVID is quite simple. We've been thanking frontline workers, first responders, for a very long time now, over 18 months. And we keep saying thank you, I see bus boards, and you do too. But what we want to do is plant a tree for each Canadian frontline worker and healthcare provider um, to say thank you, to say in a genuine, lasting way, thank you for what you did in 2020, 2021. This is a moment in, the, in Canada's history that cannot be forgotten, and it cannot be forgotten who got us through it. Hmm. You know, I hearken back to one of your two projects, very successful, very meaningful, the Highway of Heroes tree campaign, but also one that I wasn't aware of, Grand Trees Climate Solutions. So these combined projects have raised well over $12 million, making it possible to plant a million trees up to now and another million by the end of 2022. What are we talking about in terms of fundraising when it comes to Trees for Life with the COVID connection? Well, to get us launched, we, um, uh, we applied for funds through the $2 billion a tree program, with a B, uh, in Ottawa through Enercan, <clears throat> that is Natural Resources Canada. And we were successful in uh, convincing them that $2 million would be a fantastic amount of seed money to get trees for life trees for heroes going and the condition of course is that we have to match that well we are matching it and what we're looking for from the average canadian citizen is uh whatever they can afford of course but our attempt is to raise five hundred thousand dollars to top up what we have already raised partly through our industry association landscape ontario but also uh, some very generous private donors that have been with us for the ride on the Highway of Heroes, and some corporate donors as well that we're engaged in conversations with. So we're saying $500,000 from Canadian citizens would send a huge message, not only to the governments that we're asking for support from, but also to every Canadian that keeps saying, we want to thank our frontline workers and our health care providers. Now we've found a meaningful, lasting way to do it.
Why trees? <laughs> yeah, really. That's a serious question. Yes, I know it is because <laughs> there are a lot of people don't know. But let's begin with this. Every breath we take of oxygen comes from the green living world around us. The most sophisticated clean air providers and oxygen producers in the world are trees. And there's nothing, by the way, Ant, that's been created by the hand of humankind that comes close to trees in terms of uh, their efficiency, their economy, and uh, their ability to make the world a better place. This should be, in my view, apart from reducing all the various things we, we, we are currently engaged in in terms of using carbon and producing carbon. This should be our number one counter strategy uh, in, in helping to make the world and the environment a better place. You can't beat trees. On your website, treesforlife.ca, there are 33 reasons what trees do for us and for our planet, the description of that. What are your top Five, if you're able to quickly give us, in your opinion, yeah. the top five reasons well, why trees are essential to our well-being. Well, think, okay, the first thing I'm going to say is think about you're going on a hot summer day to have a picnic. You grab a picnic blanket. You've got your basket full of goodies. Where are you going to put the blanket? Are you going to put it on your driveway? <laughs> are you going to put it in a parking lot? You're going to find a tree, and you're going to put your blanket there. And my question is why? Why did you just do that? Because trees are transpiring moisture and, and cooling the environment. Uh, to the extent that a mature maple uh, actually transpires 100 gallons or about 400 liters of water a day during the heat of summer. So they cool the environment, they produce oxygen, they filter toxins out of rainwater, and they provide a more livable space for humankind. We just we just need to add another twenty eight to make it thirty three. But you did that beautifully. <laughs> you did that beautifully. So let's talk about how you are going to proceed with this. How do you determine where you're going to plant the trees, and how do you confirm who it is you're planting for, and and in the name of the person? Right, and that's an excellent question. First of all, we're planting with the two million dollars from the federal government and the two million we're we're, we're raising. So we have four million dollars, and, and and we don't have it, but that's the goal over the next two years. Um, the the idea is to collaborate and facilitate and educate groups of people who want to plant trees. So let's say you've got a listener in Richmond Hill. And they say, I want to plant some trees around my synagogue or my church or my, my school. Um, then that's great. You, you make plans to do that. Bring people together, i.e. volunteers, to help make it happen. We will bring resources that are difficult for the average Canadian to access, including trees, cash, hmm. knowledge, education. Wow. So we work with people who are predisposed or pre-committed to planting trees. We are not going to go out and create these projects ourselves. We're going to go like a river down a hill, and we're going to find the people who really want this to happen and help them make it happen in their community. What's the end goal when it comes to this, psychologically, emotionally, physically, and environmentally? <laughs> I, I think the end goal is a better world. You know, 
uh, we would love to double the urban tree canopy across Canada. You know, Edmonton, God bless them, they have a 7% tree canopy. In Toronto, we have uh, a 22 24% canopy. It varies from city to city. All cities across, all urban areas across the country uh, really require an enhancement of the number of trees that they currently have. Uh, and I would love to be able to say to you, well, our goal is to double the ur- urban tree canopy right across the country. But I'm not sure I'm going to live long enough for that. <laughs> I have to ask you, the campaign will officially launch September the 29th. How can people like me, somebody who's just interested in having a I guess, memorializing or recognizing heroes, whether they are war heroes or heroes of this pandemic, how can I get involved? What can I do? Where do I go? Well, that's a great question, and and the answer is treesforlife.ca. Hopefully all your listeners have access to a computer. If they go to trees for us, trees for us, treesforlife.ca, then they can learn a whole lot more than you and I can squeeze into a radio interview. Um, and as, as they explore the website, they'll see opportunities to donate, to donate in the name of a frontline worker or, or a first responder if they choose to. Not everybody will, and not all of our projects, quite frankly, revolve around that concept. Um, many will, um, uh, but at the moment, some aren't. They're just tree planting uh, projects in different communities. So it's all there, treesforlife.ca. I think that's the best place to start. And, of course, you can ask us questions. Let us know what's on your mind and give us some of your own ideas. This is a very young organization, after all. Horticulture hero Mark Cullen, Trees for Life, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.